The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 23. The Eyes Have It. I think part of the problem is the name, Ed said, when we convened the next morning for breakfast in the cheapest hotel we'd been able to find the night before. I'm sure if we'd looked a little longer and walked a little farther, we'd have found one that didn't even do breakfast, but still. The Nutty Burglars, that does the job perfectly, doesn't it? I said. No, 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 I mean the four comiques. I mean, what is that? We're not French. There's nothing French about us. Even the number four in the four comiques is not French. It doesn't make any sense at all. Well, what do you have in mind? I asked, realising that the man was not going to shut up until he'd said his piece. Hurley, Stan, Art and Wren, Ed pronounced, then sat back with a smug smile. Eh? Stan said. Hurley, Stan, Art and Wren. It's got a nice rhythm to it, and that half rhyme makes it really memorable. I glanced over at the others and could see that the idea was not quite sitting right, and if I knew one thing about show folk, it was this. Billing is everything. Even in an act that had no bookings and was on the very brink of extinction, we would be arguing about this for the rest of the morning. I noticed that I come last, Wren grumbled, scraping a thin layer of butter onto some cold toast. It's for the half rhyme, Ed said. Well, why not Hurley, Wren, Art and Stan? she replied. It's not as why you call by your surname and the rest of us by our first names, Stan frowned. So that he gets two syllables, I muttered. No, it's just better, Ed protested. When did I become Art? I asked. At least the rest of you get a whole one of your names in the title. I just get half of mine. Art, Art, Art. I'm not an Art. Ed was becoming exasperated now. All right, do better if you think you can. I knew exactly what would wind him up the tightest, and I was in a mischievous mood, so I pretended to give it some serious thought, and then said, How about the Stan Jefferson Quartet? What? Oh no, Stan waved a hand modestly. Stan's the lead, he's the main part, he's the star, who needs to know who we three are? It's all about Stan. I could see that Ed was going to reach boiling point, and glanced across at Wren. She caught my barely perceptible wink and chipped in. I like it, she said. I think it sounds classical. It sounds ridiculous, Ed blustered, getting halfway up to his feet and jabbing a forefinger in my face. And if you think I'm going to... All right, all right. Let's calm down, shall we? Stan said, putting his arm around Ed's shoulders and proving, by the way, that he was the leader of our little troop. This is a conversation for another day. Bookings first, then billing, eh? The four of us decided to split up and do the rounds of the bookers' offices. There were quite a few in Chicago, servicing a large number of small and even smaller time venues in the boondocks around the city centre. There was a chance that we could pick up some dates filling in if an act had to cancel because of illness or perhaps a unicycling mishap. I saw one of those once, by the way. The fellow's seat flew off without him realising, and he sat down heavily on the unprotected central pole at which every male member of the audience involuntarily clutched himself. So I spent the morning knocking on doors and sitting in waiting rooms with other underemployed vaudevillians of various description. I discovered, by the way, that not wearing a gaudy on-stage outfit was actually an advantage, as I was frequently taken for a tradesman of some sort and thus spoken to immediately, which saved time. The pickings, however, were somewhere between slim and none. The only sniff I got would have required us to stand in for a sick monologuist and split his money four ways. We'd have done better sitting outside the theatre with a cap, frankly. I was leaving one of these offices, which was reached via a staircase between two shop fronts, and when I stepped out onto the pavement, I saw heading towards me such an extraordinary-looking fellow that I stopped in my tracks. 
I wasn't the only one either. Other passers-by were turning to gawk as they passed him. He was not tall or particularly well-built. His clothes were ordinary, if a little on the baggy side. His hair jutted out in tufts under his derby hat, and he had a great soup-strainer of a moustache, which almost perfectly concealed his mouth. The truly distinctive feature, though, the one that was drawing so much attention, was that he seemed completely cross-eyed. He cut such an odd figure that I didn't even spare a glance to the fellow he was walking along with until that one tapped me on the arm and said, "'Arthur Dando?' Of course. Who should it be but Chaplin? He was almost as flabbergasted to see me as I was to see him, and I'd taken a step back in amazement and banged the back of my head on the doorframe behind me. "'Good Lord! Charlie, fancy seeing you!' "'I thought you were in England!' he cried, his face a kaleidoscope of puzzlement, fake pleasure and alarm. "'No,' I said. "'Tilly went back, and Freddy went with her, but Stan and I stayed.' "'Freddy went with her,' Charlie said, wonderingly. "'Well, well, well!' And so what are you and Stan up to now? We are, well, we're still, um, I mumbled as I wondered what to tell him, and my eyes flicked back to the extraordinarily ill-appointed ones of Charlie's companion. Oh, I beg your pardon, Charlie said. How rude of me. This is my colleague, Mr. Ben Turpin, comedy film actor. Ben, meet Mr. Arthur Dando, vaudevillian. A pleasure, Mr. Turpin, I said, and we shook hands. Vaudevillian, eh? Turpin said in a raspy voice, looking over my shoulder. Well, looking over both of my shoulders at once. That's right, I said. We do a turn called the Nutty Burglars. Without Tilly and Freddy? Charlie asked. You remember the Hurleys, Wren and Edgar? Charlie frowned, as if trying to force his memory back to a time of utter insignificance to him. It made me want to punch him in the face. Finally, he ventured. Uh, gorgeous and a bit of a prig? That's them, although I wouldn't call Edgar gorgeous myself. Turpin laughed, and then asked, "'And where you at with that?' I'd had a moment or two to think by then, and managed to come up with, "'This week we're booked into the Milwaukee Empress.' "'Well, well,' Charlie said, "'back in the old Empresses, eh? Good for you, good for you.' I smiled as he patronised me, neglecting to mention, of course, that we had been cancelled and summarily replaced by a Chaplin film. "'I did my time in vaudeville, and I liked it well enough. That's how I ended up with these.' Turpin pointed at his crossed eyes redundantly, since I hadn't been able to look at anything else since our conversation began. Playing happy hooligan for years, and they just stuck. But I'd rather make my fifty bucks a week into flickers. Work during the daytime, and the evenings are my own. Wait a moment, I said. You're working for fifty bucks a week. That's right, Turpin replied. Why, yax? Only because, according to the Chicago Herald, I began, but suddenly Charlie started coughing. <coughs> oh, oh, "'Oh, my, a glass of water, would you, Ben?' "'Sure thing,' Turpin said, and trotted over to a nearby soda stand. "'Arthur,' Charlie hissed urgently, "'there's no need to draw Ben's attention to how much I am being paid.' "'It was in the newspaper,' I said. "'I know, but somehow that passed him by, "'and there's no need to cause any more awkwardness than we absolutely need, "'now is there, since he and I have to work together.' "'As you wish,' I replied, and Charlie patted my arm gratefully. Turpin came back then with some water, which Charlie took and sipped at. "'Because Charlie is being paid $1,250 a week,' I said to Turpin then. His crisscross eyes widened, and he juddered as though an electric shock had passed through his body. Chaplin, meanwhile, spluttered water all down his shirt-front. "'You don't say!' "'And a bonus of 10000 I said. "'It was 10000 wasn't it, Charlie?' Chaplin composed himself and tried to rejoin the side of us, the workers, against the side of them, the management.' 
"'I shan't see any of that,' he muttered grimly. "'They promise you the world when they want you to sign, "'but then they try and back out once they've got you.' "'Turpin was looking at Chaplin quizzically. "'At least I think he was. "'Well, uh, we should be on our way,' Charlie said. "'I'll walk with you,' I said, enjoying the little man's discomfort. "'So I've been thinking about heading out to California. "'You recall we spoke about getting into the movies, me and Stan?' "'Charlie shot me a look then, and I saw that he got my drift. "'Listen,' he said, "'about that. "'I tried to get some fellows to come along, really I did, "'but no one of any account was free until the following week, "'and you'd have been gone by then. "'But I told them all about you, and they'll be looking out, I'm sure, "'any time you go back.' "'Well,' I went on, "'I thought I might go and see Mac at Keystone. "'I wasn't really thinking of doing that. "'I could hardly afford the train ticket, "'but I just wanted to give Chaplin something to chew on.' He grinned mirthlessly, showing all his pearly whites. He knew he had no influence at his old studio any more, and I knew it too. "'Sid is there, you know,' he said. "'I heard that,' I said. The thought of Sid coming all the way over from England, a crossing that must have been fraught with terrifying uncertainty and fantastic expense, to piggyback on Charlie's success, only for Charlie to up sticks and leave, had given me a pleasurable frisson of schadenfreude. Not that I would have used that word at that time, for fear of being beaten up in whatever bar I happened to be holed up. "'Ah, here we are, look, Ben,' Charlie said then, clearly itching to get away. We were passing a shoe store, and Charlie made for the entrance. "'Arthur, what an astonishing coincidence to bump into you here, but we really must dash. I'd come and see your show, but—' "'But it will take you some time to round up all your important movie people, by which time we'll have moved on. I understand. I understand perfectly,' I said, enjoying riding him. What poor old Ben Turpin must have made of it, I don't know. But Milwaukee is just a little too far, I was going to say. So it's shoes you're looking for, is it? Charlie sighed. Yes, I need some for my character to wear on screen. I had to leave the ones I'd been using back at Keystone. Because you left under a cloud, rather. Well, he said, that's as maybe. You want some used second-hand shoes, though, don't you? Big, battered ones. If I find any big enough, then I shall pay someone to batter them. Well, when I put together that exact same costume, when I did the stowaway, remember, I found the shoes in the Carno trunk. They were just stock, funny big shoes, like everyone uses. Roby, Billy Ritchie, everyone. And then again in the wardrobe room at Keystone, remember, that time we visited? You, me and Stan, and Mac offered us all a job, remember that? From his tight lips I gathered that he did remember that, and also no doubt recalled that he had made it a condition of signing with Keystone a year ago, that Stan and I were not to be employed along with him. "'The costume department here is more limited,' he said, and turned to his companion. "'We should go.' "'Pleasure to meet you, young fellow,' Turpin said to me. "'And listen, if you'd like a day or two as an extra and a lot while you're in town, "'just pitch up at SNA and mention my name.' "'That's very kind, Ben. Thank you,' I said. "'Don't mention it. Anything for an old vaudevillian. "'This business is hard enough without folks helping one another out if we can. Am I right?' <laughs> The four comiques reconvened as arranged to discuss how each of us had fared with the various bookers we'd approached that day. No joy, I'm afraid, Stan sighed. No one's cried off sick, or got stranded in another city, or suddenly retired from the business forever. I have a similar tale of woe to relate, Ed said, although in fairness I was not really expecting him to be the one who struck gold, as that would have required him to be personable. Well, I bumped into an old friend, I said. Someone from the Carno days, Stan asked. Indeed. "'Male or female?' "'I don't want you to guess,' I said. "'It was Charlie. I met him in the street.' Stan, Wren, and Ed looked at me as though this was the most fantastical proposition they'd ever heard. 
Yes, that's right, I said, as none of them seemed about to speak. Charlie Chaplin. What did you say? Stan asked quietly. When he asked what we were all up to, what did you tell him? Um, ah, well, as it happens, I told him we were booked to play the Milwaukee Empress this week. And that it was cancelled? That detail may have slipped my mind at that moment. Stan and Ed both heaved a sigh of relief. Good, Stan said. Good. Well done. The last thing we want is for anyone to know we're on our uppers, Ed said, especially the one man we know who is quite obscenely successful. Yes, I said. Anyway, I might have got us some work if we want it, as extras on the S&A movie lot. Wait, Stan said, shocked. Charlie offered to get you some work. Charlie did. Well, no, the man he was with, actually, the most extraordinary crossed eyes you ever saw. You're sure he was talking to you? Pretty sure. Hmm, Stan said. We're going to have to think about this one. Is nobody going to ask me how I got on? Wren said then. I'm sorry, Wren, did you have any luck? I didn't get us any bookings, no, Wren said. Oh, well, Stan said, perhaps we should try again tomorrow. But, Wren went on, I did have one interesting conversation. I met Calmer. You remember Calmer, Ed? We shared a bill with him in New York when we were with the Buster Brown Company. Ha! <laughs> that poppin' Jay, Ed snorted. He's an illusionist, but the only thing that is illusory about him is his talent. Ha <laughs> ha! He was always perfectly charming to me. Yes, my dear, because he was hoping to make your husband disappear, and then, unless I'm wildly mistaken, your clothing. Well, isn't that nice, Wren said. What the lovely Calmer told me, if you're interested... Yes, of course. Go on, Wren, Stan said. Is that he happened to be discussing the nutty burglars only last week with the agent Claude Bostock and Gordon Bostock, his brother, who is also an agent. Discussing? They caught us in Cedar Rapids over Christmas, apparently, and thought we were aces, so Calmer said we should certainly go and see them, see if they could do anything for us. Oh, how do we... I mean, where? Stan stuttered, suddenly as excited as I'd seen him for quite a while. Their office is right here in Chicago, and I have already arranged for us all to go and see them on Wednesday. You may now thank me and buy me a drink. Chapter 24. His New Job The S&A Film Studio in Chicago was very different from the only other one I had visited, which was, of course, the Keystone Lot in Edendale. There, the various stages were open to the elements, and the Californian sunlight was diffused by great swathes of white linen draped overhead. Conditions in a Chicago January were far from Californian. There was ice on the roads, and a light snowfall during the night had dusted the trees and the window sills while the temperature felt barely above freezing, so I was glad to find that all the filming was to take place indoors under electric lighting. Wren was pleased too, as she'd accompanied me for this little adventure. Stan and Ed had decided against, for reasons of their own. Stan was afraid Charlie would be uncomfortable if we turned up at his place of work, particularly as he was starting anew. That, I said, is precisely why I want to go. He deserves a little discomfort after the way he spiked us back in Los Angeles. Well, I think I shall do another round of the bookers and try and get a sense of how the Bostocks are regarded in the business before we meet them. Admirably professional, I said. We shall see you this evening when Mr Chaplin will be paying for the drinks. 
Ed also felt that it would be inappropriate to tag along. He claimed to feel awkward as he had not himself met Ben Turpin, but I'm sure he felt that being a mere extra was beneath an artiste of his stature. Wren, though, was nothing if not game, and we strolled up to the door, arm in arm, to present ourselves. If nothing else, she said, it would get me away from Ed for a few hours. The SNA studio was a converted warehouse in an industrial part of the city, as befitted the organization's full designation, the SNA Film Manufacturing Company. Once inside the building, we found ourselves directed to a waiting room, which was depressingly full of would-be stars of the flickers, coughing and eyeing one another up with barely concealed hostility. My heart sank at the thought of joining this rabble, and so I led Wren straight up to the young secretary at the desk. "'Excuse me,' I said, as a little ripple of, "'Who do they think they are?' murmured around the waiting room. The young girl looked up. She was pretty, with light brown hair and a very nice smile, and she looked like she should certainly be in pictures before anyone else in that waiting room. "'Take a seat, please,' she said. "'We were invited to come along by Mr. Ben Turpin,' I said. "'Oh!' This little name-drop had the desired effect, and more, as Wren and I were quickly whisked through a swinging door into an inner office, where a slim, dark-haired chap was consulting a page of typed script with lots of odd notations jotted upon it, arrows and the like. "'Mr. Robbins?' "'Here's some friends of Ben's. How many more do you need?' "'One of each should do it, thanks, Edna. These two will do fine.' This Robbins wafted a hand carelessly at another door behind him and went back to his studies. Through this further door we discovered a wardrobe room, and I was given a rather fancy military uniform to wear, blue with black straps across the chest, and a fur collar and a fur hat, as well as cavalry pants and high boots.' A dark moustache was glued to my face, a sabre in a scabbard was hung from my belt, and the effect was Eastern European and historical, without being particularly specific. When I saw Wren, some half an hour later, she had been transformed into a noblewoman with a long gown and an abundance of costume jewellery, and most eye-catchingly of all, a wig of blonde ringlets covering her own lush dark brown locks. My breath caught in my throat momentarily, because as the light caught her and her necklaces sparkled, she tossed those blonde ringlets, and just for an instant I was looking at the very image of Tilly. It threw me, I don't mind admitting. I'd been having a hard time of it, missing Tilly, and contemplating an uncertain future, having heard nothing from her for months. I don't say that it excuses what happened a little later, but it might have been part of it. The first thing that struck me when we were shown through to the stage itself was that there was none of the chaos that had characterised the Keystone lot where three films were being made on adjacent sets while further constructions were noisily hammered into being just feet away. There was a good deal of hanging around, actually. Fellows in similar garb to mine loafed on a staircase smoking while sundry other ladies in gowns like Wren's leaned on the wall complaining that the dresses would not permit them to sit. There was a table to one side where cups of coffee were available and so we took advantage. I had high hopes that there might be lunch at some point too, which would make the whole day worthwhile. I spotted Ben Turpin then, and took Wren over to meet him. Ben, I said, remember me, Charlie's friend from yesterday? My voice barely caught on the word friend, but then I was an actor. Ben swivelled sharply, and I saw him unable quite to conceal a hip flask, which he'd been using to top up his coffee. "'Oh, hey!' he cried, his eyes darting left and right, but not necessarily both together. "'There you are! You made it, eh?' "'Yes, thanks to you,' I said. "'This is Wren.' Wren offered her hand, and then stopped, as if not quite certain that Ben would be able to locate it. He did, however, taking it genteelly in one hand, while shoving his flask away with the other. 
"'Say,' he said to me with a sly nudge, "'you've done all right for yourself.' "'That's not—' I began, but Ben winked, and it was such an extraordinary sight that my protests tailed away. "'Want some?' Ben said then, allowing his flask to peek cheekily out of his jacket pocket. Ren and I both received a generous splash of Ben's bourbon in our coffees. Again, I don't offer this as an excuse for what happened, but who knows? It may have been a factor. Charlie appeared then, dressed as his tramp character. He had evidently found some big shoes to batter, and all work and conversation stopped to observe this moment, the start of Chaplin's SNA filmmaking career. Charlie looked slowly at everyone without speaking, and then gave a little smile. Suddenly, without explanation or preamble, he launched into a clog-dancing routine that he had performed as a boy with the eight Lancashire lads. The stage crew, the actors, and we uniformed extras watched in amazement until the dance reached its big finish, and then there was a moment of stunned silence until someone realised that applause was expected and began a round. "'I am ready,' Chaplin pronounced, to a good deal of eye-rolling and barely concealed smirking. Anticlimactically, Charlie spent the next long while deep in conversation with the man Robbins. They were discussing some technical issue, and I could see that Charlie was unhappy with some detail of what was planned. I saw him glance in our direction, but my moustache and fur hat and Wren's blonde wig caused his eye to scoot over us without recognition. I felt mischievous, gate-crashing his work in disguise, as it were, but also a little foolish. As we waited for something, anything, to happen... I couldn't help remembering that Charlie and I had started in the same place, on the same rung of the ladder, when we both joined Carno back in Alt 7, and yet here he was, lording it over everyone for 1250 bucks a week, while I was wearing an itchy false moustache for beer money and a free luncheon. Finally, a young fellow who was the assistant to the director, Charlie himself was directing, clapped his hands and began arranging us around the staircase. It seemed that we were merely to decorate the place as the main female character arrived, and we were told to bow and scrape as she did so, because she was the Duchess of something or other. We couldn't grasp what the overall story was, but it turned out that there simply wasn't one, at least not where this scene was concerned. The whole scenario was merely a film within a film. The idea was that the tramp had come along to some fictional studios, named Lockstone, as a sly dig back at Mac Sennett, for a job and a free lunch, much as Wren and I had done, and he then disrupts the shooting with anarchic interventions. This explained why there were two cameras, one was merely a prop, and why Charlie's costume was incongruously contemporary. So, we filmed this duchess parading in front of our various grovelling, and as she began to have a dramatic confrontation with the other main actor, the tramp would barrel in and mess things up. Several times there was confusion as the actor playing the director of the film within a film would shout cut and remonstrate with Charlie and the extras would wander off and light up, not realising that the real camera was still cranking until the real director shouted cut in his turn. I also enjoyed, hidden in the ranks as I was, watching Charlie attempting to direct the actors, which he would invariably do by acting out their part in front of them and then saying, there, do it like that. The eye-rolling resentment that ensued the moment his back was turned was greatly heartwarming, somehow. Lunch was, as anticipated, the highlight of the day, a help-yourself spread of cold meats and pies, the likes of which Ren and I hadn't seen for an age, perhaps not since we were in the copper-mining town of Butte, visiting Irish Mike's Orpheum Bar. No actor ever turns his nose up at a lunch like that. One never knows when the next chance will come along. So we troughed like trencher men. 
Ben Turpin waddled over and topped up our drinks from his flask again, which made the whole meal go down even easier. The result, however, was that Wren and I were both overfull and more than a little tipsy by the time the bell went to summon us back to the stage. It seemed we had come to the sequence that Charlie and Mr Robbins, who was directing the real camera team, had disagreed about, and they were still going at it. Meanwhile, we all waited and waited, a little uncomfortable now under the lights in our fur-lined costumes, and I frankly began to feel like I could do with forty winks. Charlie was now dressed as a soldier, similar to we extras. He had an over-large sword strapped to him which kept catching on the floor, and the flimsy story was that the main actor in the film within a film had not turned up, and the tramp had taken his place. Now to one side of this main set, a curtain hid an area that was being used to film the backstage scenes, and to the other side there was a swinging door leading off to another room. What Charlie wanted to do was a sequence in which he travelled left to right, barrelling through all three of these rooms, through the curtain, across the main set, and then out through the swinging door into the third set. Robbins, the producer, was insisting that this could be filmed in three separate shots, but Charlie was insisting that he wanted to do the action all in one go. This would necessitate the building of a little railroad to carry a dolly truck with a camera mounted on it, and the painstakingly careful choreography of everyone who would get in Charlie's path as he tumbled through the scenes. Chaplin, of course, got his way, and so we were obliged to hang around while this miniature railroad was constructed, with Charlie all the while attempting to perfect the timing with which his sabre would jab the fake director in the backside as he passed by. "'I'm so bored,' Wren murmured, having sidled over to me. "'I know,' I said. "'Me too.' "'Can you imagine anyone ever laughing at any of this?' she giggled. I grinned. "'Not really, no.' It's amazing how important these guys think they are. It's as if there's nothing in the world as interesting as the flickers. So let's make a flicker about the flickers. Wren giggled some more. If only they had another camera, they could make a flicker about the flicker about the flickers. Maybe it was Ben Turpin's flask doing the work, but I began to find this exceedingly amusing. My God, I said, can you imagine how much Charlie would love that idea? Not only letting people see his genius, but letting them see how he does what he does. They could make a whole movie about the building of this little railway. Wren whispered in my ear, and I laughed. No one was paying us any attention, and it was clearly going to be a long while yet before the setup was ready, so when Wren suggested that we should slip away for a few minutes, I could see no good reason not to. We slipped along a corridor behind the set, and found ourselves in a dark props room with dusty bits and pieces strewn around from other flickers. Oh, Wren gasped, Arthur, those lights! I'm so hot! Me too, I said, removing my fur hat and unbuckling my jacket. Help me, there's an angel, Wren said. This dress is so tight. I haven't sat down since breakfast time. I unhooked all the little hooks down the back of her gown, and she stepped out of it in her undergarments, sighing with relief like one being released from prison. Amongst the props there was a chaise long, and she draped herself across it with a luxurious moan of release. Take that jacket off, you're making me hot just looking at you, she said and I did so, placing it around the shoulders of a plaster replica of the Venus de Milo. Then Wren patted the seat beside her. "'Don't be shy,' she said in a low voice. I recognised the danger signals then, I think, but I was so relieved to shed the costume and relax for a little while that I stretched out on the chaise. She moved her feet out of my way, and before I knew it she'd slipped right round and laid her head in my lap. "'This brings it all back, doesn't it?' she said and I felt her voice resonating in my groin. "'What do you mean?' I said, thickly. "'Well, surrounded by props and costumes, 
away from prying eyes. We've been here before, haven't we? And we had. The brief fling that we'd had back in the Carno days had mostly taken place in the props and costumes compartment of the Carno boxcar, with the rest of the company, including, of course, her husband, behind a curtain just a few feet away. And although it had turned out that she'd been principally interested in trying to provoke Edgar into jealousy, nonetheless, neither of us was in any doubt that we found one another intoxicatingly attractive. "'Not quite the same, though, is it?' I said. "'No,' she said then, moving again so that she could slide slowly up my body until our mouths were very close. "'This time, Ed is not in the picture.' "'No,' I said. "'He didn't want to come, did he?' "'And I did,' she breathed. "'Well, then we were kissing, ever more passionately.' and my hand was seeking her breast, and hers was on my trousers, and pretty soon one thing was leading to another. We fumbled our way out of what remained of our costumes, still kissing frantically. I hadn't felt like that for at least six months, not since Tilly left, of course, and Wren was giving every impression of being similarly starved. Her silky warm body was in my arms, and my nose was buried in a forest of blonde ringlets. Oh, Arthur, Wren breathed as she moved under me. "'Oh, Tilly,' I gasped. "'What? What did you say?' "'Nothing,' I said, catching myself, and beginning to move a little more urgently to try and take her mind off my distracted blunder. "'Ah,' she said. "'I thought—ah.' I'd closed my eyes, and behind my eyelids I was dimly aware that the room suddenly seemed much brighter. I opened my eyes again, and in the new illumination I noticed something else that I hadn't seen before. On the floor, a little way off— I saw a length of track, like a little railway, that seemed to run away into the next room. I frowned, trying to make sense of this image, but with a large part of my attention taken up with the soft, gorgeous woman squirming beneath me, the rationale remained elusive. Until, that is, there was suddenly a hubbub next door. I heard shrieks and protests and thumps and bangs. I heard the squealing of some little wheels that needed oiling. I heard voices shouting, "'Hey, mind out!' and "'My ass, you chump!' Then there was a thump and something smacked into the door to my left, which swung flat against the wall. A figure in a blue soldier costume barreled through and did a flying tumble into the far wall, bringing a shelf of empty tin cans crashing down onto his head. At the same moment, a little cart appeared, with a camera on it, and a man cranking away furiously, while the man Robbins pointed furiously and then shouted, "'Cut!' I froze for a moment or two, faced with this surreal development. There was a moment of still silence, and then laughter broke out. The film crew laughed fit to bust, and they were quickly joined by the extras from the next room, all crowding in at the door to look. Wren craned her head around to see what had occurred, and shock and embarrassment flooded her features. The two of us began scrambling to cover ourselves, grabbing our bits of costume, and hustling around behind a packing crate, where we began to wriggle into the clothes as quickly as we could. This just seemed to redouble the mirth of those watching, at which point the figure who had crashed through the door rose from under the pile of cans with a smug grin on his face. "'Good! Good! Excellent! See?' he said, jabbing Robbins in his chest with a smug forefinger. "'See, Jess, I told you this was funnier. Perhaps you'll listen to me from now on.' "'Well, if you'd let me know a couple were going to be fornicating in here, then perhaps I would have listened to you,' Robbins said. "'A couple? What?' Jess Robbins pointed at where Wren and I were desperately trying to dress, and Charlie's face went from incomprehension to outright fury. "'Listen, Charlie, we ain't got time to set all that up again, and we sure as hell can't use what we just shut. Let's just do it piecemeal tomorrow like I planned, and call it a day, okay?' 
Charlie, steaming with frustration and rage, watched the crew trundle the camera away down the rails and then stomped over to us. "'Well, thanks a lot!' he shouted. "'You've just ruined a whole afternoon's work, wasted everyone's time, and disgraced yourselves into the bargain. You're fired!' I looked up at him and saw him suddenly recognise me. His eyes shot wide open, and he glanced over at Wren, who was keeping her back to him out of modesty as she wriggled into her gown. All Charlie could see was the curve of her back and the blonde ringlets falling around her face. "'Tilly?' he breathed in disbelief. "'Sorry. Sorry, Charlie,' I said. "'We'll be—we'll be on our way.'" Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.